Welcome to Business Class Money Minutes, powered by American Express. This is the podcast unpacking big money topics for small business owners, providing you with the tools and insights to solve those common financial headaches. I'm your host, founder and entrepreneur, Sharmadine Reed, and today we're going to discuss how to overcome financial challenges and thrive in the wake of them. We're joined by Alex DePledge, founder and CEO of Resi, an online architectural platform. In 2016, Alex was awarded an MBE for service to the sharing economy, and she launched Resi with her co-founder six years ago with an initial investment of just £25,000. Year on year, it's achieved a typical growth rate between 80 and 100%, and now they're on the path to breaking even. So needless to say, these business insights are not to be missed. Alex, welcome. Lovely to be here, Sharmadine. Thanks for having me. Okay, so broadly, what are the biggest financial challenges you currently face as a business? How are you dealing with it? Well, I think financially, churn of staff is something that people don't often think about. And I think given where we are in the current economic environment, where we've got more jobs than we have people, lots of businesses are facing a high turnover and replacement of people. And I think that's my biggest financial headache at the moment. Okay, Alex, so your first business did incredibly well. You had an amazing exit and then you chose to start Resi in a very different way. Why did you make the decision to go slow, go small and start with your own cash? I'm a great believer, Sharmadine, in having no money makes you truly innovative. All of the times when I've nearly run out of money have been the times when I've launched a feature that's doubled the size of the business or launched a product that's doubled the size of the business. So with Resi, and we weren't quite sure what we were building, we didn't want to raise money because when you raise money, then you have heavy expectations placed against you from day one. What we decided to do was use £25,000 and really listen to what customers were looking for. And then that's been our practice ever since. So every time we raise a little bit more money, it's because we know what our customers want us to build for them. And that has been our approach year on year over the last six years. That's a very frugal approach. What did you do with that 25,000? The first £25,000 literally just paid for some marketing, a little bit of graphic design, because Jules and I are not particularly great designers, and a little bit of bookkeeping. So when you launched Resi, talk to me about what those first few months, years look like in terms of your finances, because it's been six years now. How did your first year of business go financially? Well, the first year of business, we broke even. That's when we decided to raise money. So we started off with like quite a small product, which was just literally what could you do to your house? Like what's the realms of possibility and how feasible is it? We charged a few hundred pounds for it. There was just four of us in the business working on it. And by the end of the year, well, actually after three months, we broke even. So that year we were profitable. And then we had enough data and enough evidence to demonstrate that this was a product that people wanted. We had ideas for where we wanted to go next. And that created the story that was our first raise. And so that first raise was a I think 1.3 million pounds from 10 angels. So high net worth individuals. So that first three months were four of you around a table and I as a customer would call you up and say, I want to build a kitchen. Okay, Shah, have you ever gone to look at a house? Yes. Okay, so when you look at that house, what most people are asking is, what could I do with that house? Is the loft possible? Can it be extended at all? Could I reconfigure it inside? Could I put a side return or a rear extension on it? And what they would do at the time is drag a builder with them or an architect friend. And it was very hard for them to compare maybe two different properties together and say, which one is going to be best suited? 
suited for our needs, what one's going to drive more value long term. So we started with a product that just did that. We would take the house you were looking at and we would tell you all the different permutations you could do, how much they would cost, how much value it would add and like whether you'd need planning permission or not. So effectively like a consultant. Yeah, like an architectural consultant, that's not a bad way to label it. I think the difference was then is that people then came back to us and said, we bought the house and we love it. Now can we do this design? And that kind of took us on that architectural platform journey that we're now on. I love that. So the first three months, you were really, really tight with your finances. You were like, what could we achieve with 25 grand? And in three months, you effectively broke even. The reason I call it consultancy services, because it's a really neat and interesting way to both make money, but also listen to your customers and then use that data to fundraise. So once you'd raised the 1.3 million, where did that take you to? Oh, so that took us from those early concepts, the consulting that you talked about. Then we launched our full planning product. So we then started integrating into all the different planning councils around the UK. So Resi now achieves a 96% approval rate and the UK average is 8%. So we became really, really good at designing extensions or renovations and then getting planning for them. And that's where that next 1.3 million pounds took us. And if the next question that you're going to ask me is, what did you do next? Next is we then raised three million pounds to add on the last part of the journey in the architectural space, which was the technical drawings that a builder needs to build the home. So the blueprint for the home effectively. And then we tacked on an algorithmic marketplace that finds you a builder to build those drawings. So as you were growing and growing really rapidly, when was the first time you felt like your finances were possibly out of control? Oh my God, like all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just thinking about this. Like like I said to you, when you've got no money, you become truly innovative. And that's happened quite a few times. So I think the first time I ever got really, really scared was when COVID hit. And then the second time was in the middle of last year when all the supply chain, I don't know if this happened to you, but supply chains just gummed up. And it was, we had customers that wanted to do business, but we couldn't do the business because the supply chain was completely blocked. And that none of that was in my control. And that made me spin out massively because there's nothing I could do about it. Okay, let's rewind a little and break those two things down because there's probably a further one to add on to the end, which is the current economic crisis. But with COVID, when that first happened, what did you do to your company to effectively reserve cash and plan for your healthy de-risk financial future for the business? What was my cockroach plan? (laughs) (laughs) I I cannot claim to own that. That's Tessa Clark at Olio that coined that phrase. And I think it's just brilliant. So what we did, we retrenched so I deleveraged the business by taking it from nationwide and renovations and new builds to being just renovations just in the southeast of England. And what that meant is smaller marketing spend, smaller human footprint, and just generally de-risk the business across the board. The second thing that I did was I decided to use that time to upgrade all of our technology. So we moved from a 2D kind of drawing platform into a 4D digital twin software. And the training of that's like a year. So we did that and that was really painful. But that ultimately meant that coming out of COVID, we were in a much better place than we were going in. 
This is incredibly reassuring to hear because as a business owner, when you're growing, when you're focused on like, how can I increase my sales? How can I increase my reach? What you're actually saying is by shrinking it, being highly focused, highly targeted, you can essentially de-risk the business and make sure that you've got enough runway in the bank to service the smaller amount of customers you have better, right? Yeah, absolutely. I really believe in that. I think that businesses often run into trouble when they try to do too many things. So even when we're not cash conserving or fighting a pandemic or hyperinflation or whatever macroeconomic event is about to get thrown at us again, I think you have to only try to do a very small number of things and work out if they work and then move on. I think it's a major mistake, for example, to start international expansion before you've got a really solid footprint at home or even geographic expansion throughout the UK before you've got a really strong footprint and robust processes and tech that underpin it. And while you decided to shrink the footprint of your business to London and the Southeast, you still decided to invest in technology, in platform, in learning and development, which I find really inspiring. Also, how did you make that trade off by thinking this is where I'm going to spend money because in the long term it will be better? I think we always knew we needed to do it and there's never a right time. And I think when everyone sort of got locked away in their homes, I had to give the business some level of hope that we were going to come out of this stronger than when we went in. Because when you start to shrink and people see potentially their friends furloughed or their teammates made redundant, they start questioning well, I joined this really exciting high growth business because I wanted to change the world and I wanted to be part of something that's super high energy. So you have to counteract that shrinkage and that kind of retrenchment, the deleverage, with something that gives them hope that this is not a zombie business that's just conserving cash and clinging on. It's actually a business that can use this pause strategically to make ourselves better. And I'm not going to lie, it was so tough. And I spent so many nights laying awake thinking, what if I've done the wrong thing? And a lot of people in the business questioned my judgment. And I don't think we can adequately say that it was the right call yet because of all of the things that have happened. We haven't been able to see it come into its own quite yet. But if I went back and rerun it again, I'd probably do the same thing. I couldn't agree more. And it's really difficult as a leader when you're making tough financial decisions that you can't necessarily share with the whole of the business, right? So it's like, we did the same in our business. We chose to slim down on our events, on our marketing, on our editorial, etc., and invest in building a new platform that would serve business customers. But we couldn't really talk about this while we were building it. What would you advise for leaders in terms of communicating financial challenges to the business? Like, do you tell everyone what's going on? Do you get them on board? Like, how do you tell a junior team member that this is a tough economic climate right now? So I try to do it generically. And so what I mean by that is, I think that we have a real problem in the UK where people don't understand basic economic concepts. They can't read a P&L. They don't really understand what drives inflation or how supply and demand economics work. So what I actually do is do it abstract. So talk people through a P&L that's not necessarily ours. About four or five months ago, I gave an all hands on stagflation because no one really understood what inflation was, let alone what stagflation was. Going back to your business, the second part of your business is around building. And once a customer has said, what can I do with my house? They then come back to you and say, can you help me achieve it? How has the energy crisis, the supply chain crisis, how have these affected your business over the last year or so? 
So two really important points is the first, the supply chain crisis has had like a bizarre leveling effect on materials. So whereas you used to pay like a 20% premium to use materials whose whole life carbon was smaller than bricks and mortar, that's actually leveled out now. So actually all materials both green and both standard are all at about the same price as they were in 2020, which is great because it gives consumers a real choice about how they build their home. And then I think the second thing is people don't really talk to me about, I want to make my home green. But what they do say is I'd really like a better EPC rating, or I'd like to save money on my bills. And obviously if you're opening up your house to put a new part of it on, that's a prime opportunity for you to look at the way the whole envelope of the house works and spend a lot less money at that point in time, maybe adding some insulation maybe adding better window, U-values, potentially putting on a green roof, an SOS heat pump, all that kind of stuff. So we're seeing a big uptick in people wanting that kind of advice. And we're in a great position now to make a huge impact on people's bills and actually the emissions in their homes. That's brilliant. So sometimes it can feel quite defeating to see all of these every day on the cover of the newspaper about soaring energy bills. But actually what you're saying is this is a prime opportunity for people to think about the next 10, 20 years of their fuel consumption and actually doing something about it with you, right? Yeah, 100%. And I think that if you start talking to people about being more green, they feel slightly patronised. But if you start talking to people about Do you want a bigger, lovelier home that works better for you and saves money on your bills and actually you can do a little bit more for the planet? Everyone's like, 100% sign me up. So one of the things I know about you is you've been very, very intentional about your fundraising and financial journey of the business, only really taking money when you see a clear use for it. How have you communicated to wider investors, because you said you raised from high net worth individuals, that you were going to take a different route in your growth journey financially than just going, raising a big amount from a VC? Did you find that difficult? Because you've run this business very differently to your first one. Yeah, I mean, I don't really believe in growth at all costs. I believe that there's good growth that's sustainable and that most businesses are not suitable for venture capital. And I think mine's one of them. So with the institutional investors that I got on board, I was very, very upfront with them about the way that I wanted to build the business and the type of business that it was. It's one of those like slow burn, big moat businesses. So it takes a long time to build, but once you get there, it's huge and massively defensible. And I think that there are some investors out there that get that, that are patient, they're not looking for returns over a five to 10 year horizon, that they actually believe in solving the difficult problems. And housing is the difficult problem in the UK. You know, it accounts for 40% of all of our carbon emissions. And so I think you have to spend a lot longer and do a lot more work trying to get people to buy into that vision. But they are there, you just have to find them. So Alex, what I'm hearing from you is that there's definitely a trade-off. You can either pursue fast growth, raise VC money, be confident that you've got money in the bank to pay the salaries at the end of every month for the certain amount of runway. Or you can choose to build a little bit slower, keep an eye on your P&L really tightly, build a sustainable business and you've chosen the latter this time. Yeah, and I've chosen the latter despite the fact that I think everyone thinks it's harder because I actually think the VC route is much harder. I think we often kid ourselves when we've got lots of money in the bank that everything is fine. And actually with this one, I have two little kids. I had them both in the middle of building businesses. And if I'm going to sacrifice not being around, 
I want to be 110% sure that the business that I'm building is worth it. So I wanted to make sure that I could prove out my unit economics and that I wasn't sitting on a pile of cash that made me feel confident and comfortable. So I think I've actually chosen the easier route because I find out whether the business is viable. I get to profitability hopefully quicker. So I become master of my own destiny quicker. And also there's always a buyer for a profitable business, Shah. Like, There's not always a buyer for a money-burning, high-growth, massive business. And very soon, you get to a level where there are no buyers. Once you pass that £100 million sort of mark, the number of people that can afford to buy you without you floating, it gets less. So I actually think I've kept control, and I think that's easier than giving it away. So as you said, financial limitations create ideas and innovation. What can you advise our listeners on how to build agility and resilience for their financial future? So I've always said that if you can save up enough money to keep yourself with your head above water for six months, that is enough time for you to figure out on a very, very small budget whether your idea works or not. But you're never going to figure out if your idea works unless you do something like anything. And I think a lot of people hide behind writing a business plan or getting backing or whatever it might be to stop them from taking action. And so I think if you have a bias towards action and you've got enough money to keep yourself afloat, that will demonstrate your resilience. And at the end of the six months, you'll either have a viable business or you won't. And in this labour market, you're not going to struggle to get a job. I love that, Alex. And it's very typical of how you view the world and why I love connecting with you, talking to you and being your friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. So I learned all about de-risking your business and extending your runway by shrinking your operations and conserving cash. Also investing in technology, investing in learning and development. And even though it might take a year to get on a platform, it's worth it in the long run. And finally, being transparent with your team, taking them on the journey with you, explaining what's going on with macroeconomic trends and hoping that they'll connect the dots and understand what's going on in business. Oh, thanks, Shamadi. It's lovely talking to you. Thanks for having me. Make sure you check out the Business Clash Trends and Insights Hub for the latest articles and videos on everything related to small business finances at americanexpress.com forward slash UK forward slash business class. And don't forget to subscribe to the Business Class Money Minutes, which you'll find wherever you get your podcasts. You'll never miss an episode. Until next time, from me, Sharmadine Reid, and the entire Business Class Money Minutes team, goodbye and take care. No matter the size of your business, American Express has your back. Our range of business cards gives you greater control over your cash flow, so you'll have the flexibility to respond to change and chase opportunities. Plus, you can earn rewards from your day-to-day spend and invest it back into your business. Visit americanexpress.com uk slash business card to learn more. Terms apply.